0: This is Front Row, and I'm your host, James Whiteside, principal dancer and choreographer with American Ballet Theatre and the author of Center Center. Take a seat in the front row as I discuss the creative process and the business of creativity with the world's brightest stars. Anthony Roth Costanzo is a Grammy Award-winning countertenor who has led opera companies around the world. He has performed on Broadway, done backup for Michael Jackson, Performed alongside Luciano Pavarotti. Anthony is a graduate of Princeton, where he returns regularly to teach, as well as the Manhattan School of Music. He is a champion of new works and has collaborated with countless artists, most recently on the show Only an Octave Apart with New York City cabaret legend Justin Vivian Bond. I love the energy that Anthony brings to this interview. We talk about his days as a backup singer for Michael Jackson, his critically acclaimed show with Justin Vivian Bond, and he even sings a bit of the Gershwin Brothers' The Man I Love. Not only am I a huge fan of Anthony, but he gives a great interview here in The Front Row. Welcome to Front Row, Anthony Roth Costanzo, a.k.a. ARC.
1: Thank you, James. It's so great to be with you here.
0: I like how there's like an AOC and then your ARC. Do it? Does anybody get you confused?
1: I feel like we have distinguished ourselves to the point where you know we're we're our own entities. So no.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine they would confuse you. Um, so Front Row is is a newish podcast, and you're one of my first guests. And I'm just really happy to have you here. I'm such a fan of your work. I think you're outrageously talented as uh, evidenced by the Grammy that's sitting <laughs> off Anthony's shoulder. For all of you listen listeners who can't see Anthony right now, there is just a casual Grammy on the, on the shelf behind him. <laughs> it's amazing.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. I'm a fan of yours too. And you're always creating and innovating and doing all these amazing things. I love it.
0: Thank you, I appreciate that. Uh, I want to dive right into the interview here. I've got some really fun questions. Uh, I saw that you your parents were professors of psychology at Duke University, and I want to know what being a child of psychologists taught you, or what was it like?
1: You know, I'm broken, and uh, I don't <laughs> think I function correctly. No, it was great, actually. They were fantastic, and I think growing up with them. I learned early on how to kind of communicate with people. And that communication has been kind of crucial to building my career and my way of being in the world and my understanding of myself. So it was, I feel very lucky in a way to have had that early on. They also were never stage parents. They just wanted me to be able to do what I wanted to do. And they let me lead, which I feel like is kind of rare. I feel like either people are trying to get in your way or they're trying to do what they wish they had done or something like that. And there was none of that from them.
0: Did they give you a lot of independence when you were growing up?
1: They did. I mean, when I was 11, I had done like 10 shows in North Carolina where they taught at Duke and where I grew up. And then I was like, you know, I want to go audition for Broadway, beyond on Broadway. And they were like, great. So I moved to New York and I got into this Broadway national tour of falsettos, which is kind of funny because then I wound up singing in falsetto <laughs> for a living. And, um, yeah. And then, you know, by the time I was 15, I was like, you guys, I can't live in North Carolina, you know, like I want to <laughs> I just can't do it. And they were like, that's fine. You can live in New York alone. You'll be fine. And so, you know, they were very supportive. They were always there. I could talk to them about anything. I could talk to them about like, what if I'm attracted to a man? Or I could talk to them about my friends or, you know, and yet we had boundaries. You know, it wasn't that sort of uncomfortable thing where you're like, ooh, this person is maybe too close to their parents. So I feel very lucky about that. But I've also learned how to create other relationships in my life that feel like family and with whom I have a kind of ongoing open communication so Mm. that I process a lot. And, you know, this has has driven several of my boyfriends crazy, but I process a lot verbally. Um, (laughs) I'm not like, let me take a long walk and think about this and come back with what I think is the answer. I'm like, let's have a discussion and then we'll figure it out together, you know.
0: Let's talk about it now. Exactly. Wait, do you have a therapist or a psychologist that you work with?
1: I don't. I have in the past, but I don't at the moment. And I was talking to my friend, Justin Vivian Bond, about this today. Mm-hmm. Um, and Viv Love was, her. Love her. And Viv was like... Why do you need a therapist? You seem well-adjusted. And I was like, see, that's my feeling. I have a great time. I feel good. I talk, still talk to my parents all the time. And at some point when I need a there, I mean, I think therapy is wonderful. I think everyone should have one if they want one. And so, but I, I don't at the moment and I'm feeling good.
0: I think everyone should have a million dollars if they want that too. But, you know, it just doesn't work like that,
1: Anthony. Well, I agree. If I had a billion dollars, I would give a million to all my friends, because why not?
0: Yeah, you know, there's a crazy lottery thing today. And uh, my my friend texted me today and said, there's like $2 billion in the New York lottery today. So you should go for your birthday and buy yourself, you know, a lottery ticket or something. And I thought to myself, what the hell would I do with all that? And I'd probably like build a theater or something crazy.
1: I think that's good. I think we could go, we could each get a lottery ticket and agree that if we won a billion dollars, like, or $2 billion, you could keep one for yourself or like keep, I mean, who needs a billion dollars? You could keep like a hundred million for yourself. And then the rest, we could just build a theater that we all used.
0: Yeah. A great, a New York collective as if it's not already some sort of weird New York cult that we're a part of. (laughs)
1: We are, but you know, we could like remove some of the red tape and institutionalization and build our own cult, you know?
0: Yes. I mean, the red tape is alarming. Okay. Beyond red tape, I'm going to move on. Uh, I want to know about your time as a backup singer. I heard that you did backup for Michael Jackson and Debbie Gibson and others.
1: Oh my God, I forgot about Debbie Gibson. You really what did like deep dive research on this, which I applaud to you.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um, thank
1: you. Let's start with Debbie because if you remember Deborah Gibson, she uh I don't know what happened. I think there was this producer named Cameron McIntosh who did like Phantom of the Opera and all these, you know, Andrew Lloyd Webbery kind of things. And there was some Andrew Lloyd Webber benefit evening. And all I remember very little from this time in my life, like why it happened. I just remember being there in like a suede vest and glasses at like 12 or 13. And we sang as a duet. I dreamed a dream in time gone by like that whole thing.
0: It was a duet. So you were, you weren't backup. You were heavily featured then.
1: With Debbie, I was featured and I couldn't do, but the tigers come at night. Cause it was too low for huh. me. And Debbie was yeah. that's fine. I'll take that part and <laughs> we had, and there's like a photo that exists somewhere and that's all i remember
0: that is wild why were you in a vest and glasses
1: i you know one thing i feel like my parents i don't appreciate was like the fashion sense <laughs> situation that was ha- like when i go through photos and clothing i'm like what was happening here like why why were we doing this whole
0: Situation. I bet you chose those clothes. I bet your autonomy is to blame here.
1: Maybe, and they should have been like, this is where we draw the line. Like, this is wrong.
0: <laughs> I remember my mother telling me that I have to take off those damn red sweatpants. I wore red sweatpants every day of my childhood, and she was not having it.
1: See, I needed your mom in my life to come in and <laughs> like, listen, that's great, but it's not right. <laughs> so...
0: What about Michael Jackson?
1: So I had a jingle agent for a little while. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know Wild. why that happened. I do remember I had to audition with the Hess truck jingle. And, yeah. um, and I, I mean, she was like, I'll take you on. And she only got me two jobs. The first was singing backup for the Olsen twins, which I'm very proud of because I was on their album, how the West was fun. And if you <laughs> go listen to it now, I'm, like, in the background going, like, how the West was fun, fun, fun. And then the Olsen twins are, like, like a rodeo, like a flapjack. That's the only part of the song I remember. But um, that was, like. (laughs) uh, I
0: can't believe it goes from rodeo to flapjacks. That's, like, a plot twist, if If, you ask me.
1: If you don't spend some time listening to the Olsen twins, I'll try and send you. So you can do, like, a podcast drop-in of that moment. (laughs) You think? I can't
0: afford that. I can't afford podcast isn't drop-ins. It, isn't
1: it like less than 30 seconds It's free or something?
0: Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah.
1: How the West was fun. Fun, fun, fun. Like a leap from a haystack. How the West was fun. So that was like exciting for me. But then she called up one day and she's like, so we need like six kids to sing backup for this Michael Jackson thing. But you have to sign a non-disclosure agreement that, you know, you're not going to know what it is. You're just going to go in the studio and figure it out. And I was like, okay. Mm -hmm. So I went in this huge recording studio in New York and Michael Jackson was there. I, I want to remember all the details. I don't know if I was drugged or like what was happening. I remember very little of this. Uh oh. But I'm going to tell you. Uh Uh-oh. What I remember, which is that I like went in and we all sat in a circle and like learned a song and recorded it and sang it. And then he was like, it was October or something, but he was like, you guys should come back next week. I'll throw a huge holiday party for you. And we were kind of like, okay, like, yes. And so we went back and the studio had been transformed. No parents were allowed inside, but we went in and it had been transformed into this like winter wonderland with ice castles and snow and bridges. And Wait, so
0: are you, are you breaking an NDA right now?
1: Maybe. Um, I don't know <laughs> what the expiration date of it was. I don't know what the song is. I still don't know what the song is. Like, it's not like I have a copy of it.
0: Did it, it never came out?
1: I don't know. I, like. You don't remember
0: anything about the lyrics or anything?
1: Nothing. I feel like okay, there was a soul or a flame or some kind of thing. Like, I wish I knew. This is a
0: bouquet of red flags. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, but then he, there was like a kind of Santa chair. And I remember his hair was kind of greasy and kinky and long. And he was in the Santa chair, but I don't believe we sat in his lap. But we went and talked to him And he gave us, like, gifts. And, hold on.
0: Okay, so, listeners, my eyes are wide right now. And my face is in some sort of horrified grimace slash interested smile. I'm doing both. Yes, so I'm seeing some crumpled up paper. Some, like, origami or something.
1: It's an old, it's very old paper from the 90s. And inside of this crumpled up paper, I found...
0: Oh my gosh. It's the dangerous album.
1: Dangerous album signed love, Michael Jackson, I think. Yeah. Right?
0: I mean, yeah. you know, it could be anything really. But I believe you. I
1: mean <laughs> you scrawled across it. So that's the only like that's the only proof I have that any of this actually happened and I didn't like completely imagine it because it feels very hazy. Yeah. But um yeah, you know, that's that's what happened. That
0: is wild. That is a fascinating you know historical twist
1: yeah I feel like I've touched various great people yeah in my life
0: okay well that's fascinating um so from backup singing to Michael Jackson and doing duets with Debbie Gibson how did you end up in opera and what brought you to opera
1: Well, when I was about 13, somebody asked me to do this opera, The Turn of the Screw, which is a very psychologically complex opera. And so I was like, ooh, this is fun because I can talk about it with my parents Mm -hmm. and talk about post-traumatic stress disorder and childhood sexual abuse and all of these kinds of things. As a 13-year-old? Yeah. And it was actually, this is what my parents studied. And so it was a very interesting moment. And actually, it's, you know, after doing like the entertainment of musical theater, this was like a you know it was like how do you express these really complex thoughts on stage and opera was very cathartic in that mm. way and I I hadn't experienced that kind of heightened emotion and drama in the same way I mean it happens obviously in the musical theater world but it it it's just like a, a, it has a slightly different fever pitch So I really loved that. And everyone seemed to think I was good. And someone was like, maybe you're a countertenor. And I was like, what is a countertenor? And they were like, well, basically you just keep singing high. And I was like, cool. And you know, had I not had psychologist parents, I feel like they might've been like, well, you're, you're going through puberty now. So like, it's time to start being a man.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but nobody said that. And so I just kept singing high and, uh, and people seem to like hire me for things. And I got to sing with Luciano Pavarotti, mm-hmm. who was one of the three tenors for our younger listeners who don't remember those <laughs> days or what the three tenors I remember were the
0: C D ads on television. And they'd be like, you know, they would be like these weird crossfades of the three tenors. It's who was that? Pavarotti, um uh,
1: Domingo, Placido Placido Domingo. Yeah, that's right.
0: Oh man, what a time to be alive.
1: And do you remember when Pavarotti sang with Liza Minnelli and they did New York, New York together? Have you ever seen no, that? No, but
0: that sounds like required viewing.
1: Also going to send it to you because she gets out there and like wants to go full Liza. And he like doesn't really know the song and can't really pronounce any of it. So he's like, my star. and she's like, oh my God. I mean, it's really like an iconic performance. I'll send it to you. He also did amazing duets with like grace jones i mean there's a whole you need to get in i love these weird
0: collabs which it actually brings me to collaboration i feel like you have some really fabulous collaborators uh why is collaboration super important to you
1: well you know i wound up in this field of opera you are in the field of classical dance but you've managed to broaden out so i feel like you understand how important this is but we get stuck in our ideas and we uh, are honoring tradition and are excited about tradition and all the and technique and all of the things that come along with it. But that can be really limiting. It doesn't connect in any way in my experience to the zeitgeist or the culture of now very easily. Uh-huh. One way I've found to keep tradition alive, to keep it growing, to keep it, keep embroidering it is to, find collaborators who have a different perspective than I do and to see how I can make what I do exciting in their eyes Mm -hmm. and vice versa, how to get excited or um, artistic about what they do with the tools and materials that I have. And so um, it's been incredibly fun. I mean, I grew up after I did musical theater and opera. I did film. And then I went to university and studied a lot of different things. So I've been, you know, I've dabbled. And I was once upon a time the executive director of a dance company for a choreographer named Carol Armitage. Heard of her. You know, I... I had a lot of different lives hmm. and I was able to bring, I was really fascinated by film and dance and and I wanted to bring that together. And the other thing I'll say about collaboration is, you know, opera is kind of the first, not to take precedence in any way, but it's like a real interdisciplinary uh art form in which ballet came to the fore you know what i mean and all of these things and really you've got if you think about it art in the set design fashion in the costume design you have dance you have music you have drama you have poetry you know you have all of these things working in concert so i want i start to think about well what are the other collaborations now technology is a part of theater so how does that become part of this interdisciplinary art form yeah
0: So you've got a fabulously successful show with Justin Vivian Bond, a New York City cabaret legend. Can you tell me how that came about? It's called Only an Octave Apart. And do you have any more shows coming up?
1: We do. We're running it for a month in London, which is a coup for us. Um, Very excited. And the CD is out. So check it out on any of your, you know, it's called Only an Octave Apart. You know, I it started with a record contract I had with Universal Music and Decca, and I'd made one kind of classical album. And then I was starting to think about what I wanted to do next. And I remembered fun things when I was young, like Victor Borga. If you've never seen him, he was a pianist who used to like make a lot of jokes while he played classical piano. And it was amazing. And I loved Leonard Bernstein's Young People's Concerts Mm -hmm. and all of that. And I was thinking, like, I need to find the right collaborator. And I met Justin Vivian Bond maybe 13 years ago or something. I went to see them perform in New York when I had no concept of, like, what is the life of a trans person or anything that I feel we're much more aware of these days. It just, like, felt so incredible to be in that room and see someone so self-actualized, so brilliant, so charismatic. And I was immediately drawn to it. So... I went backstage and said to Vivian, can I, can I be a guest on one of your shows? And they were like, well, actually I need a guest next week. So why don't you come back and sing? And I did. And we wound up singing together and it was very electric. And when we went off stage, Viv was like, you know, we should do this on television. It should be like uh, Julie Andrews and Carol Burnett at Carnegie Hall. I had forgotten about that. Yeah. But as I started to think through, like, what could we do that was fun, that idea came back up and I discovered through my voice teacher, who is a crazy diva of old with scarves and perfumes, but brilliant and and I love her. And she was like, well, you know, Beverly Sills and Carol Burnett, the great American opera star, Beverly Sills, they did a show at the Met. So I watched it. You can find it on YouTube. And um, I was like, that's it. You know, that is Classical music is as entertaining as, you know, American standards and jazz and all of these other things. And similarly, that music can be complex and nuanced and all the things that we think about and sophisticated or whatever classical music is supposed to be. So that's how the idea began. And then as we started working together, developing the repertoire, making the album, I had this crazy realization. And we put the show together with this amazing director, Zach Winokur, Mm -hmm. and this incredible... Team of collaborators and you know from Jonathan Anderson doing the costumes to Carlos Soto doing the sets and and John Torres doing the lights and we had these amazing people all together all of a sudden I was not just a queer person doing classical music but I was expressing my queer identity through the combination of personalities and repertoires that this show represented, mm. and It was a small distinction, but one that actually made, like, it made a big difference, and it made me really happy. And I realized that I wasn't, you're not always able to express that identity in a a classical context. So being able to do that and being able to define yourself that way and then going back into those contexts with all of that was really exciting. Yeah, that's
0: beautiful. Uh, I I just can't stress enough how much I relate to that being a classical artist uh, with with a very contemporary soul.
1: is there one project where you feel like you have all of a sudden been able to do the height of your classical skill and technique and ability but also feel like yourself?
0: I mean no, not really. I've been able to do that in my own work in in works that uh, either I create for myself like I, I make pop music in which I make music videos and choreograph, and I'm able to explore my sort of TRL fantasies. And then, you know, the ballets that I create for ABT or wherever I make them, they are tinged with like they're very classical in nature and they're very traditional by way of steps. But um, there are sort of they're they're really modern and they feel very unique to me and my soul. Um, but I have yet to have a a big ballet experience in which I can be a gay person in the ballet. Uh, still, the only gay dance I've really ever done that I didn't choreograph myself was for the Fire Island Dance Festival, and that was like five years ago so i'm I'm really ready for someone to to come in and make some like gay ballet because there's so much gay contemporary dance, so much gay modern dance. Uh, but I wanna be a gay person in a classical ballet because that's where my heart is. I love classical ballet,
1: yeah,
0: I hear a lot of well, sirens really- over there. Is everything okay?
1: Well, I mean, I think people are basically they've called nine one one and they've been like, "Get James a gay ballet like yes. that, immediately
0: emergency. <laughs>
1: there's a gay ballet emergency happening outside right now. It's like a bat call that you just put out into the world. I feel
0: like that's redundant. Gay ballet emergency. It sounds like three of the same words to me.
1: (laughs) Uh, Generally amongst my friends, we're just like, oh, you're having a GBE. Yeah, like that (laughs) happens a lot.
0: So I would like to know, uh, like what is the main takeaway for people who come to see Only an Octave Apart? Like, what's the point?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think you walk away, whether you're queer or not, whether you're, you know, it, it's hard to express it without sounding cheesy. But you have these two people who look different than the way they sound. I sing very high. Biv does not. But we, we do not sound the way we look. And there's this great little sequence I'll just describe to you in which, mm. um, to answer your question, in which... Viv comes out and in a crazy Jonathan Anderson, you know, outfit. And it's like, mm-hmm. do you ever wonder what it's like to be normal? And thus begins this whole number in which we're kind of questioning, you know, oh, yeah. And and Viv is like, well, go behind that curtain like Debbie Reynolds and Singing in the Rain. And you sing and I'll lip sync to it. And then I'll know what it's like to actually look the way I sound. And then Viv is like, this is amazing. You have to try it. And we do the inverse. And I'm like, well, I, I'm not sure. Like, I, I felt like I like to have both. And well, you have both, don't you? And Viv is like, it's not easy to be everything. You know, there's this whole kind of meditation on identity, which then gives way to this Kate Bush, Peter Gabriel duet, Don't Give Up, in which... You know, there's a serious sense of feeling lost and needing to find a place for yourself. Somewhere there's a place uh, where we belong. And then the show kind of climaxes with Under Pressure, in which, you know, the David Bowie, uh, Freddie Mercury duet that we do totally differently. But it climaxes with the line, um, love dares you to care for the people on the edge of the night. Hmm. You know, and I feel like there's a sense of forward motion and propulsion and turning your otherness into an asset that even if you aren't an other is a kind of fun thing to be a part of, to watch, to be galvanized by. And um, that's certainly how we feel about it. I don't know if that answered it, but I try
0: it absolutely did. It's it's a show for people like me and for people like you and anybody who's ever felt a little off the beaten path, which I'm happily there. That's where I want to be. Me too. So I want to talk about the business of what you do a bit and uh, ask if you are represented by an agency. I know you've got a record deal with DECA, but do you have an agent who negotiates? You know what I mean?
1: I do. Uh, I have managers, yes, in Europe and in America. But really what I've learned is that, and I, don't, I think you probably identify with this, you have to go through all of the, the systems and, and things in order to get to the top of your profession, and you've gotten there. Um, but at the same time, if you want to do something different or be something different and be really successful at it, you have to kind of carve your own path. And if you don't want to be content with the way the institutions or the sort of um, norms of the business engage with the public, you have to uh, make your own stuff. And so while I have, you know, managers who deal with my normal classical life and being a part of the firmament, quote unquote, and being able to, you know, uh, to exist in that world, I have to simultaneously do a lot of fundraising, marketing, you know, producing, budgeting, coming up with ideas, executing projects, getting collaborators excited, thinking about the future. So I would say that's about 65% of what I do and then the mm. rest of it is is the is the normal opera singer stuff.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's very interesting. People ask me a lot about uh what I do outside of of American Ballet Theater. And, you know, this podcast is a great example. It's like, I am not just what you see on the Met stage, as I know that you are not as well. Um, but it takes a lot of work to build um, a career beyond the performances. And I'm very interested in, clearly, I'm very interested in what goes on behind the scenes of building a, a career beyond our art and that uses the art to explore new opportunities, new collaborations and, and just like finding all the beauty that we can.
1: Totally. And how would you say you divide your time? Like if I, if you were going to take me through a pot, like one of those pie charts of a James B. Whiteside, you know, life division, how much of it is like ballet class and technique and working in rehearsal? And how much of it is like, I've got to do this thing for this. And you know, how do you, how does it, Divya. Well, it
0: changes when when we're in rehearsal season, when we're in performance season. So, if I am working towards performances, I'll do ballet class around ten a.m. That's an hour and a half, and then we can rehearse for up to seven hours uh, via our union regulations. And after that, I'm pretty much cooked. So, when I'm in a hard season, you know, schedule, it's really hard to get me to do anything beyond training and rehearsing and then when we're performing i'm usually in such a mental state that i'm conserving energy i'm like i I become very protective of i guess like my soul in a way it's like i don't want to give it away before a show it's like i can't give you anything inside of me until i'm done with this show and then we can go have a drink and i'll probably be a husk of a person but you know I'll still go, you know? So uh, the work-life balance when it's in season is really different to when I'm not. So like I'm off right now because I have, I've had a knee surgery. And uh, in that time, I've had a lot of opportunities to focus on different aspects of my creative career, writing, choreographing, developing the business side of what I like to do, like doing this podcast, doing social media and finding ways to make money when I'm not doing what I do at American Ballet Theater. So it changes. It's always changing. And sometimes there are silver linings to things like having a major knee injury. Yeah. So you got to look at it like that, too.
1: Well, you make all of those things into a silver lining, which is so remarkable to watch. And I feel like you, you ring dry every moment and every opportunity, which I am always dazzled by.
0: Thanks. I appreciate that. I'm living.
1: You are living.
0: So I want to know what's beyond performing for you. So say you had to stop performing at some point, what would you do?
1: Well, you know, like your knee surgery, when I was 26 or something, I I found out randomly that, and just by chance, very luckily, that I had thyroid cancer. And so they had to open up, and your thyroid is like right on top of your vocal cords. So they had to open everything Mm -hmm. up cut it off and they were like, you may never sing again. And I was like, oh. Um, And I was like, well, I better like get down with doing other stuff. And I've realized that, you know, with all the imagination it's taken to build a career for myself and to build projects for myself, I'm really interested in how I can set the world up for other artists to do exciting things and engage audiences, Mm. both new and old, in sort of the future of our art form, and how do you begin paving that pathway without alienating everybody who you respect or who you know holds the keys to the current kingdom that's been really interesting for me, and thinking about the strategy of that and um, where that can lead me and exactly what i where I can have the most impact. you know what i mean i'm excited about what i've been able to do so far. And, um, I was thrilled to receive major support from the Mellon foundation over the past year to be not only building my own world as a creative producer, but also bringing artists, dancers, transitioning out of dance, you know, along with me and showing them how I've raised a million dollars for a project and put it together or how I've gotten, you know, Raph Simmons to make all the costumes or whatever has been interesting to whichever person over time and what we're doing going forward, what we're making.
0: Yeah. It sounds like a sort of creative director, artistic director, programmer, funder kind
1: of deal. Yeah, sure. That's a lot of hats. <laughs> Let's do it all. I mean, that's what you're going to wind up doing. Don't you think?
0: Uh, I don't know. Honestly, I don't really want to artistic direct a company. I like making things too much. I think it would be really hard for me to be overly administrative because I really, I just like making things. I like writing. I like making dance. I like performing. I like it all. Uh, but in, in closing today, I was wondering if you would sing me the favorite line, your favorite line of any song, any opera, anything. It can be Britney Spears. It can be show, whatever.
1: Oh my God. This is a good question. The favorite line of anything ever. Hmm.
0: Or it can just be one that you want to sing. You know, I don't want to put too much pressure on you. You can also say no.
1: I mean, I want to think of some fun thing. You know, what I used to sing when I was a little kid was like my first audition song. And then it's taken on different meanings since then. Well, I mean, I I was thinking about it recently because I was in Hungary. This is the setup to this, and then I'll, I'll I'll do it and get we'll end this podcast. You're like, please, I'm trying to end this, and I'm like, let me say one more Stop. thing. But I was in Hungary, and it's this obviously like really authoritarian. Led country by, I can't even remember his name, but it doesn't merit us remembering it because he's an asshole, but the president of that country who is, you know, against gay people and all of this. But I had this gig to, and it was going to pay me pretty well and I was going to sing with the orchestra there and it was nice. So I went and I sang and midway through this kind of dour conductor was like, well, have you thought about what the encore is going to be? He asked me at intermission and I was like, why are you, why are we talking about this now? I, I have no idea. So I sat through the second half of the concert and like when I wasn't singing, I was thinking like, what could I do as an encore? And it was being broadcast on national television as well. Wow. I then was just like out of the blue, like, you know, I'm just going to do this song a cappella, And this is what I'm going to do. And everybody was like, OK, and had no idea what the song was. And then I just sang And then I walked off stage and was like, Is there a car to take me to the airport? And I got out of the country and here I am.
0: Wow. That's quite a mic drop at the homophobic Hungarian orchestra, National Orchestra, or whatever it was. It was fun. Oh, that's amazing. That's such a cool story. I love that.
1: Well, thanks.
0: Thank you for singing also on my podcast. I didn't mean to put you on the spot there, but I sort of did. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Where can people follow you on social media and such?
1: Thanks for asking, James. I'm at A. R. Costanzo, which is C-O-S-T-A-N-Z-O at, on Instagram. And I'm like A underscore R underscore Costanzo on Twitter. And I'm Anthony Roth Costanzo on Facebook. But I don't know if your audience has Facebook because I'm so old that I don't know how... What,
0: where's your... T- you don't have TikTok?
1: I do have TikTok. I think I have like two followers, unlike some people on this call. Um, but I um I'm gonna tell you, I think my TikTok is just A R Costanzo. Again, it's A R C O S T A N Z O.
0: I feel like you could crush TikTok. If you like got some Gen Z person to tell you what to do.
1: You know, we need to collaborate one day, James, but I think we could ease into it on TikTok. So I think you're right. Let's do it.
0: All right, I'll do some brainstorming. I'll troll the the feed and see what inspires me. Thank you so much, Anthony. You are such a joy. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, James.
0: Don't forget to subscribe and review this podcast. And if you like it, share it with your friends or on social media. You can follow me on all social platforms by searching James Whiteside. My book, Center, Center, a funny, sexy, sad, almost memoir, is available everywhere in all formats. Front Row uses music from the song A-flat by Black Violin. Check out the show notes on jamesbwhiteside.com for exclusive video and audio from this podcast.